This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. It's the Blood Red podcast, courtesy of the Liverpool Echo. I'm Guy Clark. Thanks a lot for joining us. The new season is getting closer. International football can go back in its box and back on the shelf. The Reds are out in Austria and Virgil van Dijk's back in group training. It's a buoyant Blood Red. The new season starts here. I'm bringing you the latest Reds chat. We have our Liverpool correspondent, Paul Gorst, Matt Addison, and having watched England eliminated at the final hurdle at Wembley, Theo Squires is here too. Gents, I hope you're all well. Gorsi, throw to you first. You've uh, had a bit of time off, but you're feeling refreshed and, and ready to roll for the new season? I am, yeah. Three weeks off, which is the longest I've, I've ever had off since I've worked at the Echo, uh, which is coming up to six years. And I think it's the longest I've had off just any kind of way since 2010. Um, so, yeah, a good, good few weeks. A uh, bit disappointed that my me, uh, me trip to the Dominican had to be kiboshed because of the COVID situation, but uh, rescheduled for the September international break. Uh, managed to get up to Edinburgh. And now I'm, uh, I'm back uh, at the helm and ready to, uh, to have a little matter about the football. Happy days. That's a way to spend your international breaks, Theo. Not not going and watching England. Uh, <laughs> you, you you were at Wembley. What was what was what was the experience like for yourself? Because some have obviously not had a, a very great experience. I'm just going to say you've really depressed me there. Saying the season start today, I've only just got back off the last <laughs> one now, and you're saying, "Oh, here we go again." There's my little trip to the Dominican. <laughs> it was it, it was interesting at Wembley. Like we, we've all seen the scenes and the videos and stuff, and from all the games I've done, it was the one where it felt a bit heated beforehand. Like I didn't see any fighting or scraps, but the fans were there. They were covered all over Wembley way. And you can tell they'd been there a long, long while just drinking and that it was building up to maybe something getting a little out of hand. There wasn't much of a police presence. And I suppose the saddest thing about it all is it wasn't a surprise when it did happen. Like, it's just what you expect. 18 months where fans haven't been able to go to games, they haven't been able to do this, um, going to matches with the mates, 55 years without having anything of note to do with the national team. It all came down to the worst possible time. And it's just a shame that it's a real dampener on the end of the what has been a good tournament. Um, there have been some great teams, some great players, which I'm sure we'll get onto later in the pod. It's just, it should have been a celebration, shouldn't it? You think football being played across the continent. And instead, it's going out with, well, the rest of the continent mocking England for its coming Rome and all this, all these labels of arrogance and hooliganism. And the selfish minority have proven them right by storming the stadium. It's not how you wanted the, the month to end, but from a personal point of view, great experience to be able to cover at European championships in my backyard. Yeah, definitely. Matt, you, you, I don't think you've got a trip to the Dominican sort of booked or anything. How have you sort of found the last month? It, it sort of feels right that the international football has had such a spotlight on it, but the day it finishes, bang, Liverpool's pre-season campaign starts. Yeah, that's when the, the excitement starts, I think, for, for me, to be honest. I think, you know, tournament football is, is brilliant and you get to see loads and loads of games. I particularly enjoyed the group stage where you've sort of got two or three games on every day and it's just, you know, wall-to-wall football. You get to see a few different players, but I think, you know, after a month or so of, of that kind of happening and it winds down eventually to the final, you are kind of, you're ready then, aren't you, for, for sort of Liverpool to come back, obviously. We're going to talk through all of, of the sort of Liverpool storylines. You've got, you know, Virgil van Dijk, you've got Conate in the new sign-in, you've got, you know, so many sort of things to, to sort of get into. And I think it's it's been a way long enough now that you're just, you know, really ready for, for that to all start up again. And, you know, there's, there's not a huge amount of time between seasons, but I think it's 
just long enough to, to build up that anticipation without sort of spiraling over into to anything else really. So yeah, looking forward to, to getting into some pre-season chat and, and getting on with that. And obviously we know there's a couple of dates penciled in now for, for Liverpool's friendlies. It's something we'd normally know a lot further in advance, but yeah, certainly I think something to, to look forward to over the next couple of weeks or so. Yeah, Three o'clock off as Matt just covered the whole podcast there in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's today's edition. No, of course it's not. We've, we've got we've got plenty more up our sleeve. Before we get into the preseason stuff, let, let's just reflect on sort of Euro twenty twenty as a whole. Of course, the, the feeling towards the national team we don't really need to to go into. But Paul, you were you were watching yesterday, and what was your sort of take of it? I, I found it quite surprising myself that Jordan Henderson it took so long for him to come onto the pitch, and then when he was on, he was roped off before the penalties. I know his record isn't great for England from the spot, but surely as an experienced member of the team, he, he, he would have done well to sort of be there for the shootout. Yeah, uh, he, he would have put, a, put his hand up if he had the chance, no no doubt about that. Um, it was interesting, wasn't it? Gareth Southgate kind of bookended uh, what was, you know, a successful tournament for England, wasn't it? I know they were beaten finalists, but it's the first final they've been to for 55 years. So just getting to the final is probably enough of, of um, something to kind of suggest that there's something to build on for the national team. But he bookended it with his press conference today, didn't he? And one of the key themes he was keen to get across was the fact that he picked the penalty takers um, and there was no kind of suggestion of um, seeing who was who had the bottle for it, who put the hand up, who was willing to do it. I think that that was his way of kind of diffusing the situation because to have a... Uh, a, a lad like uh, Bukayo Sacco taking that uh, that penalty. He's what nineteen? Is he eighteen, nineteen? Um, and for a country like England to have, you know, its history of penalty shootouts. You know, we all remember that we Stuart Pearce and Chris Waddle and David Batty. And, no, you know, we're not old enough, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've seen the clips. You're probably too young to remember Talcate himself. Um, basically, you, you know, you, you know, don't you? Who's missed a penalty for England in, in major shootouts? Because kind of the uh, the weight of history that comes with it when it happens. So for that to fall on, on Saka's head at, at such a young age is probably a little bit unfair and, and a little bit um, just, you know, I, I felt for him really a full time, I really did. And and then that's before even talking about the, the, the mindless nonsense that goes on on social media, you know, from the fallout with Sancho and Rashford, um, you know, being racially abused just for missing a penalty. It's, it's uh, abhorrent and it's just... Uh, you know, you, it's not even a surprise anymore, is it? You know, you know when something like this happens, that unfortunately this is is going to be a kind of byproduct of, of the situation, and that is disgusting. But um, the the tournament as a whole, I, I thought was, was was great. It was a breath of fresh air after that crazy Premier League season we've just had with all the VAR nonsense and the, the lack of fans throughout the season. So that was the antidote to a, um, a strange and at times frustrating season. Um, and hopefully that can be the kind of blueprints for the Premier League to follow going forward. You know, no kind of, um, you know, VAR decisions are made quite quickly and, and it's all done and dusted, you know, and, and we can crack on. And obviously fans are in attendance enjoying themselves um, in the, the main part anyway. So, um, yeah, hopefully something for the Premier League to look at and build on going forward. Yeah, unless it's an absolute shock and no need to re-referee every incident inside yeah. the penalty area. Hopefully that is a key lesson taken full. But Theo, European Championships, sort of the most goals scored in one of these tournaments, as Gorsty said there, I suppose it was the ideal antidote, wasn't it? Sort of the, the warm-up for the new season, albeit your season's never ended. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was the tournament we all wanted. It was the tournament we'd been waiting for. We've been waiting a year for it. And you think when it's 18 months without fans to get the scenes that we have at this tournament where, well, even in Budapest, we've got 60,000 in there, where Wembley's gradually built up to 22,500, 40,000, 60,000. It's just great. And without the horrible scenes, it should have been a celebration of European football. And you've seen some great games. Like we had the group of death where that could have gone anyone's way when you had Germany, Portugal, France, and Hungary put up a great fight in that group. Then in the knockout stages, you have Switzerland beating France after a three-all draw. Croatia's 3-5 against Spain. And even earlier on, you've got like Finland getting a famous win. You've got North Macedonia actually doing all right. Granted, they didn't win, but they got some famous goals. Scotland, they turned up and they got their point. And that's a success for them, isn't it? There were so many good stories. And it was a feel-good tournament when you're watching these great players, great goals. And like Matt mentioned in the intro, it's just one where you could enjoy it, where it's one where our oh, game's at two, game's at five, game's at eight. You could sit back, take it all in. And from us, we can almost enjoy it as fans rather than journalists. We can just watch the game and have a bit of a light-hearted feel about it And when it's sunny and all that as well. And like I mentioned earlier, it's just sad that it's ended on this horrible note. But it's a big bugbear of mine that penalty uh, takers getting abused for taking these penalties. Because you look at the penalties, they're not bad spot kicks. Like Even the ones Jordan Henderson has missed in the past, he's hit the um, target, hasn't he? And the keepers just drive the right way. He's gone through the corner. Saka's gone for the corner there. Rashford Grant, did hit the post, but he sent the keeper the wrong way, and it's only millimetres. Sancho is really pretty much a decent penalty as well. They've just been unlucky there. It's like, well, what more do you expect from these players? They've had the bottle to step up and take him for the country. Granted, Southgate's chosen the order, but then you think, well, when he missed in 96, he was the one who put his hand up, and he knows how that's haunted him for 30-odd years, to the extent that he's only now exercising his demons by being an international manager and nearly overcoming that hurt. Uh, he tried to manage it the best way he did. And I think for the majority of the tournament, he's got his big calls right. It's just unfortunate that it was a lottery of penalty shootout that decided it all for England. But we wouldn't have England at a major international tournament, especially reaching a final, if we didn't have penalty shootout, would we? It's got to have that. That's the drama. That's why international football is a bit different because it is all these one-off games where it is do or die and it can be decided by a 19-year-old taking a good penalty, but the keeper just guessing the right way. Yeah, all for how England have changed. They still lose on penalty shootouts, so maybe not changed all too much after all. Matt, final point just on the uh, on the game last night, the final. The real disappointment for me in the scenes we saw sort of outside Wembley was the fact that the FA Scotland, Wales and, and Ireland are all sort of looking to club together to bid for the 2030 World Cup, which I think, regardless of your feeling on the national team, if there was a major tournament on these aisles, everybody would be able to get involved and enjoy that. Certainly if there were games, say, to be played at Anfield. But those scenes by a minority and those trying to break into the stadium as well, just, it will just ruin it for everyone. Now there's no chance, is there? Yeah, no, it doesn't help, does it? It doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help, you know, England in terms of, of reputations and stuff like that. I think, you know, for me, part of the reason why I'm slightly sort of apathetic towards the England team is because of certain minorities. And this sort of just underlines that that, that is still the case, unfortunately, which it, it just, you know, shouldn't be. It. I think, you know, whether whether you're an England fan or, or you're a fan of another team, I think it, it reflects poorly on football fans as well, because as much as we don't like to, to sort of, 
brand everyone with the same brush. We know that there are people out there who will do that. And I think that's a, a massive shame as well. So it's, yeah, it's, it's just not something you'd want to see. I mean, in terms of, of a home tournament, I'd say this, this tournament is pretty much, I know they played one game away, but pretty much England, it, it was a home tournament for them, wasn't it? So that was... Yeah, for, I yeah, for England, I mean, sort of being hosted though around, yeah, around the country. Yeah, no, yeah. of course. I mean, in, in terms of, of getting sort of fans, as you say, in Anfield or St. James's Park or, or all over the country, that would have been, you know, something to, to really savour and, and get behind. And, you know, fingers crossed that it does happen at some point in the future. But yeah, I think, um, yeah, that uh, as the guys have said, I mean, it's it's a small minority, isn't it? And I think we have to, to reiterate that. But yeah, possibly the small minority has ruined it for the majority. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Right, before we move on then into pre-season, let's have a bit of fun and let's talk about players who maybe stood out to us and didn't really know all too much about before the tournament kicked off. And if I gave you a blank checkbook that Michael Edwards had signed or John W. Henry had actually signed off Gorsley and you could spend it on any player from the tournament to, to bring into Liverpool this summer, who caught your eye? There was a few, actually. Um, Jeremy Docker was someone who, who heard of but hadn't seen too much of, but... Yeah. Thought he, he had a good Euros. I thought he was absolutely electric against Italy, and I was probably unfair to be on the, the losing side that night. Um, Isaac um, for Sweden, I thought he had a great tournament. Very strong, powerful runner, La Liga Young Player of the Year. Um, but you, you mentioned him before we come on air, guy, and, and you'd have to say Pedri, wouldn't you? You know, what is he? Eighteen years of age, plays like he's played three hundred senior games already. He's going to be an absolute superstar for Barcelona and Spain for years to come, you know, just the archetypal Spanish midfielder, Barcelona, superstar in waiting, um, he's going to be some player. Yeah, Theo, what about yourself? You saw a fair few of them live. I just want to add something on Petri there. You think, well, Barcelona, they might have to cash in, mightn't they? Struggling financial yeah, team, yeah. Little, little Barcelona now, let's go and put a bid <laughs> in and take him. Um, I think the one time I saw Petri like, live, it was probably his worst performance as well for Spain. He wasn't at his best in that. But, um, that was against Italy. Chiesa's impressed me. I know he's been linked with Liverpool in the past um, as like a Salah replacement, like players always are. But um, he really came on strong towards the end of the tournament, getting into the starting eleven. He scored some big goals. I think it was was it Austria where he took it down on his head yeah. and his chest and rifled it in. Um, Before the ball like, had even bounced, yeah, unbelievable yeah. finish. And then did you get the opener against Spain as well? I should know. Yeah. I was at both those games, but yeah, he yeah. looked a real uh, bright talent. And there's a few that stood out. Um, the lad at Netherlands, Malen, he, he looks lightning, doesn't he, on the ball? I know he's been linked with Liverpool as well, so it's just a case of, oh, let's say the one Liverpool have been linked with. But out of all the players that you do see in the room at um, Gossip Columns, here's one you could see as a Liverpool signing, couldn't you? One that will come out and be that squad player work. It's way up in a bit of pace. But then um, it's like the obvious names, isn't it, really? Like Cristiano Ronaldo scored a few goals. Kylian Mbappe cool. was there. But we're not going for them, are we? Yeah. You say, uh, Portugal had a player that did impress me, Diogo Jota. But we think we're already covered with that one. Yeah, I but, don't know how much he did in the tournament, but you've, ne- you've listed before you, before you list every other player who played at the Euros. I'll let Matt have a go, and if he, if he doesn't, if he doesn't pick him out, we'll come back to you, Theo. Uh, well, you did say a blank checkbook, so I mean, Kylian Mbappe is the open yeah. goal, isn't it? But, yeah. Um, I think in terms of, of realistic ones, I think Mikel Damsgaard was one that sort of has been picked out a few times again been linked with Liverpool I think that would be sort of reasonably sized fee I think it would have gone up over the tournament but he was one that, that really impressed me I think you could sort of see him playing in a few positions which I think is is really important for a Liverpool type player could 
maybe back up the front three, could maybe play in a, a slightly more withdrawn midfield role as well. So I think he would be one. And, and Alexander Isak was another one that early on in the tournament, it does feel like quite a while ago now that he was sort of playing for, for Sweden and it, it it does feel like months rather than weeks ago. But yeah, no, I think, uh, I think those two had, had certainly impressed me. And I think both of them, you could kind of see Liverpool going for that sort of player, obviously not off the back of the Euros. They would have been looking at them before if they do go for them. But yeah, I think those two would, would make a little bit of sense. Go on, Guy. I'll, I'll throw in two more before we move on. Liverpool yeah, don't on. have the left back, but Spinazzola in Italy was, was fantastic, wasn't he, until, until he got injured. Um, it was a shame to see him limp out to the tournament because he was he was probably my player of the tournament. And then um, one we all know about, Jack Grealish, Aston Miller, who's absolutely oh. a player. He'd be superb coming off the bench of Liverpool, wouldn't he? I, midfielder, I, um, PSG, Genie Ronaldo, he looks decent. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like that Joachim Myler, uh, the, the left-back who plays yeah. right-back at Atalanta. He would be a, a useful player maybe to have who could play on, on both sides. Anyway, I can rip the wall chart down now. Euro 2020, done, boxed off. <laughs> Won't get another mention here on the Blood Are you not going to show off your sticker book first? I've actually got it somewhere around here. I can try and dig it out. No, I won't because no, because our listeners, our listeners, it means nothing for. But that will be going in the cupboard this afternoon. Right, let's get on to, to preseason. Gorsty, coming back to you on this, and we uh, we spoke on Friday's podcast about the, the thirty-four man squad being named, and they were heading out to Austria. But the only thing we were saying that was missing was some preseason friendlies. But they've now been confirmed. Yeah, um, so they've got two in one day, haven't they? It's um, a strange kind of two 30-minute games uh, against uh, Wacker Innsbruck. Um, and who's the, who's the other one, Matt? I can't, can't think of Stuttgart, I think. Stuttgart, Stuttgart isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's it, yeah. Um, yeah, Liverpool unusually leaving it quite late to to, to talk about the friendlies. Um, they, they were saying a couple of weeks back that it was, a, it was a fluid situation and something that would be named in due course and... I was actually, I know I've been off, but I was speaking to, to Joe Rimmer about it last week and, and I, I just said to him, I've got a feeling they're, they're going to mention, you know, announce something on Monday at some stage. And, and lo and behold, that, 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 that is the case. So it's good. You know, they're in, um, they've gone straight to Austria, haven't they? Which is a bit of a, a departure from previous seasons where they've um, reconvened at Melwood and then they've had a couple of games at Tramier and Huddersfield and Chester and whatever else it is, you know, quite local. Fixtures before moving on to America or Singapore, as it was in 2017, was it? And then the uh, the, the, the pre-season camps. And, and I think, you know, well, I, I know the club sees these pre-season camps as like, you know, the, the, the most important part of, of your pre-season preparation. Everything before that is just a little bit of a fine-tuning and almost kind of necessary uh, necessary evil to be flying out to America thousands of miles away from, from where you actually want to be. But um, you've taken the... The opportunity to just go straight to Austria and, and crack on. So there uh, will be plenty of hard work in, in the sun uh, where they are and, and I think they're moving on to a separate camp at some point. But they're there for a couple of weeks. Um, I think the last friendly is on the 29th, so we're only on the 12th today. So we have the best part of the three weeks out in Austria and uh, hopefully that will stand them in good stead for uh, what's going to be another difficult, hard, uh, long Premier League season. But uh, I think... Um, I think excitement's already building, isn't it? Just from the amount of first team stars that are already there. You know, normally when preseason starts day one, it's you know a little bit of a shadow squad, and you might have a handful of first team stars. But looking at it now, they've obviously got Mane, Salah, Trent, Matip, Gomez, um, Van Dijk, um, and then a, a few talented, exciting youngsters who uh, maybe one or two haven't seen too much of. So 
Lexi K. Gordon and um, Matty Musilovsky. So uh, it's going to be going to be interesting over the next couple of weeks to see uh, see what what they get up to in Austria. Yeah, I'm really intrigued by this preseason, actually, Theo. And I, I, I don't want to sort of go too far, but feel it's really important and right up there in terms of importance in the preseason camps and campaigns that Jurgen Klopp's overseen before, off the back of what was effectively two seasons or a season and, and a, an extra one sort of truncated on it. They finally had a bit of a break. We know, obviously, things didn't go to plan in terms of a title race last season, second half of the campaign. So now, really, chance to double down and and go strong, start the preseason campaign with so many of those big names about the place. It sort of feels as though there is that importance to it to setting off the season on the right tone. Yeah, it feels like a proper preseason, does it? It's like so good to see the pitches where oh, Salah's there, Mane's there, Van Dijk's there, as opposed to they're starting their holiday today, having been in an international final yeah. yesterday. You think it's only what the the Brazilian lads and Henderson who are going to miss the most here. You might, Thiago will miss a couple more weeks as well, but it has been a refreshing change to Liverpool because you think well, even last three years they've just had players gradually fed back in. I think as Salah actually reported back from the first day of preseason since his first season with the club, it's important getting these players in, getting them that game time so you can get the team gelling together so they can be fully fit and raring to go, and it will put them in a good stead to start on the front foot. Like you think, well, um, the title winning year was it? They didn't even have Sadio Mane until like days before the first game against Norwich. He had to start on the bench there, so they're going to be in a much stronger position. And there was always that question mark as well over. Well, we know Van Dijk, Gomez, and Matip are back, but how back are they? Are they just in the group running around, or is it right day one they are straight back into the action, kicking balls around, and all this? And so it's a big chance for them to get fitness up and prove themselves. But it's the same for the likes of Naby Keita, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. There are a lot of players in this Liverpool squad with a point to prove. And then the likes of Harvey Elliott coming back from his loan spell at Blackburn. All of them have got something to play for and to fight for because it seems like Jurgen Klopp's squad, whilst it's not really unchanged, the places aren't as secure as they were in the past because you've got those players back from injury and you've got all these different aspects. You've got the senior stars getting that bit older. So it is a real chance to all of them have a go, impress the manager and see what happens. Transfer market-wise, there's not really been any concrete links to anyone, either in-goings or outgoings. It's just like the odd rumour about Shakiri or Harry Wilson, for example. So it's like, well, the squad's here in pre-season. They've got a few weeks together in Austria. They can really knuckle down, work together as a group, and then whatever they can do in the transfer market will be a welcome bonus. Yeah, Matt, pictures obviously coming out of the, the camp and Virgil van Dijk back with the group. It feels an eternity since we've seen that. Yeah, it's great to see, isn't it? There's some brilliant pictures. I always think that when they go to, to Austria and they're in the mountains and you've got all the brilliant colours and the backdrop and obviously to see you know Virgil van Dijk and all of the, the rest of the players as well. But I think particularly with him, just because of, of how big a miss he was and how much everyone has, has been looking forward to, to seeing him. He looks obviously in brilliant shape, the fact that he's here. On day one, doing all of the the tests, the lactate tests has, have taken place this morning and, and things like that. I mean, it's just you know it's it's an exciting step, isn't it? And I think, you know, as Theo says, it's it's an important preseason. I think all over the pitch for Liverpool, you go through each of the positions. Centre backs, obviously, we know the the injuries that they're coming off the back of. There's obviously the new arrival to put in there. There's Ben Davis to think about. You know, left back, you go to, to Costa Simicas. We've not seen anything of him. You wonder sort of what happens with him next season. How much time will he get on the pitch? In midfield, again, there's Wijnaldum Hold, who can sort of come in and, and take on that. 
And then in the forward line again, there's, you know, Diogo Jota isn't there at the moment, but he will be in a few weeks' time. There's him to come in, there's Harvey Elliott. I just think there's there's lots and lots of questions to be asked. So as much as, you know, it's it's brilliant that, that Liverpool have got all of those players back, still more to come, of course, and, and more quality to to add to the the group that's there. I think there's a lot of, of questions to to be answered and you know, I know as as the guys have said, it's a it's a hugely important part of the season. I know Pep Linders has been speaking today about how you know much he loves preseason, loves working with all of these players. I think Jurgen Klopp is is exactly the same, and it's it's going to be really really interesting to see how they use this time, how they go about it. If there's any sort of tactical changes that we see next season, off the back of having you know a real good preseason together, because they just didn't have the opportunity to to do that last season and. I think, you know, given that they do have a, a bit of time and obviously all of these big players there, I think there will be one or two things to, to sort of look out for into the new season. Trust yeah, Matt's no. lead there on the seventh choice centre-back. He must be the only Liverpool fan that actually remembers Ben Davis as a thing. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> I'm sure Guy does. Rain it in. Rain it in. Right, OK, you'll get kicked out if you keep that, that kind of chat going. Yeah. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Of course, the talking of Jurgen Klopp's in the, the pictures of him sort of on the training pitch as well, beaming smile. And you were talking before sort of about some of those big names who are involved. He must be rubbing his hands with glee thinking, I have got these guys now in the full build-up to the season, including someone like Trent, who was due to be away at the Euros, but he's obviously involved. Yeah, 100%. I, I think Theo hit the nail on the air before when he was, he was talking about Salah and Mane. I mean... Look at um, as as you said with the season Liverpool won the league. I think Mane came back to the training on Monday and Liverpool were playing Norwich on the Friday night. So we started on the bench and he obviously eventually got up to speed and, and got up and running. But I think particularly with Mane after the season he's just had, but he hasn't really had too much of a break for two years. He's been playing continuous football, whether it's with uh, Senegal or to African Cup of Nations or you know whatever it may be, and and obviously putting in quite the shift for Liverpool. So he's basically not had any time off at all so he's now had what the best part of six weeks um, and now he's back with Liverpool on day one of pre-season training I think probably him him and Firmino for me the, the two players who um, suffer the most in the absence of fans as well I think that those two really need the the wind in the sails from the cop and, and um, you know just with, with the performances against Crystal Palace almost you could tell straight away with Mane in particular that with the fans being in there, he just had his tail up from, from the off and he looked really sharp. So hopefully this, this coming season now with, with a proper pre-season under his belt and fans back at Anfield, he really will hit the ground running and get back to the sort of level that we've been used to seeing from him in the past two or three years. I mean, he scored 16 last season, which, um, you know, it's it's not it's not a poor return, is it? But um, there was quite a lot of, of um, games that seemed to pass him by and he just looked bereft of confidence and a little bit short on that oomph that we, we associate with him. So we're looking forward to seeing him getting a, a good few weeks under his belt and then cracking on from there. And um, it will be interesting to see what stage the defenders are at, won't it? You know, we haven't seen Mata much or Gomez since their injuries. We've seen a lot more of Van Dijk. We know he was in Dubai for the best part of two months and he's been back working at the Axis Centre since February. So um, we're coming up to what mid-July now and he might be um, ready and ready to go because there was talk of him going the Euros, wasn't it? So, you know, if he was even in in, in the frame for that, you'd, you'd expect him to be somewhere approaching 
a decent level of, of fitness over the next few weeks. So um, it'll be good to see kind of where he's at at the moment as well. Yeah, the um, Theo, I'll come, I'll come to you. And the defence, I suppose, is the great mystery as well heading into to this season as well, isn't it? Is how what condition Van Dijk and Gomez are going to be coming back from their injury? How long Matip can stay fit? Actually, what the pecking order is? How many of them are going to see sort of game time? I suppose, and and where Liverpool go with it? Obviously, throwing Konate into the mix as well. There's going to be plenty to be worked out through preseason. Yeah, there will. I think we had a piece go up last week. It's a, a new pecking order and it's a new partnership that you're expecting to see from the centre-backs this year. I think, unless Virgil van Dijk is a shadow of his former self, which we're all pretty much sure he'll be OK, uh, he is the first choice and then it's who's playing alongside him. Uh, you'd expect Canate to be the first choice alongside him for the time being, just because even though it's new surroundings for him, he doesn't have that serious injury to come back from because it's one thing playing Van Dijk there when you know what he can offer, you know how big a player he is. But to have two players at centre-back having come back from such layoffs would be a huge risk, whether it's Gomez or Matip, especially considering their own injury records, whereas Van Dijk, he's pretty much invincible, isn't he? He's only had like two injuries pretty much in his entire time in English football. So it's one where it's Canate's for the taking because he's the one who's fully fit going into pre-season. He's got these fixtures to build a relationship with Van Dijk and show why he should make the shirt his own. And then it's catch up for Gomez and Matip to see, well, in the past, when they've had their chances, it's because of injuries at centre-back, whether it's Lovren as well in that mix. And they've all just rotated when they've got injured. And then you've still got Phillips, Matt's favourite, Ben Davis, Billy Cometeo's in the mix, um, Reese Williams, he might go out on loan, but there's still chances for these players to prove what they can do that they do have a long-term Liverpool future, even if it goes via a loan spell. And then to choose this pecking order, but last year I think pre-season was three centre-backs and Fabinho with Henderson, the very, very last choice. Um, they're not going to go into it with that situation this year. They're going to have at least five in the mix. And then it's, well, how many of these youngsters do you keep around just in case Matic breaks down again or Gomez breaks down again? Yeah, I'll have to wait and see how it does play out. Right, before we go then, let's talk a bit about sort of transfers then. And um, Matt, obviously Konate's come in before pre-season and he is ready to sort of crack on straight from the off. But how how sort of busy do you think Liverpool are going to need to be between sort of now and the, the opening day against Norwich City or, of course, until the transfer window closes at the end of August? I think they will be fairly busy. I think it will be more in terms of, of outgoings than incomings, to be honest. I think there's still a fair bit to sort of be decided. I mean, you look at the 34-man squad, for example. You look at some of the names in there. Ben Woodburn, for example. I mean, is there a long-term future for him at Liverpool? I'm not too sure. And then there's sort of the, the more obvious ones of, of Wilson, Shakiri, all these players that kind of have a price tag on their head. You think if if Liverpool can get close to that or, or get to, to that sort of price tag, they'd you know let them go. And I think it, it's one of those. I know Paul has, has reported on it all summer and, and Ian Doyle as well has sort of said, you know, these sorts of things will, will rely if, if Liverpool are going to get players in, it, it's going to be getting a, a few out first obviously the funds are a part of that but also just you know the, the space in the squad so I think it, it could be a busy few weeks I think that will start now I think you know obviously pre-season is is underway everyone's together everyone's you know back off holidays over the next few weeks we'll start to, to see those people who were knocked out of the Euros early on or you know, obviously the, the Copper America as well but you know, more so the, the Euros for, for Liverpool squad I think 
you know, we'll, we'll start to see a few things happen. But I think uh, in terms of incomings, for me, it's it's still the same two priorities as as what it always has been. It's a midfield to to uh, replace Gini and Alderman and it's a forward. But as I say, it's going to pretty much rely on on what Liverpool can do going the other way before they start looking at that. I think. I thought you were going to say the two priorities are sell funds to afford Mbappe's wages and secondly, pay Mbappe's wages. But <laughs> no, I decided not to go down that route. Gorsty, in terms of bringing players in then, and as I said, Konate's come in sort of ahead of pre-season getting underway. Is it an indication then, Liverpool from here on in, what, what dealings they do in the window will be more an eye on players maybe to come in and work their way into being first-team players, a bit like Diogo Jota, all players who will be arriving nominally as kind of squad players Otherwise, Jurgen Klopp would want to get them in as early as possible, wouldn't he? Yeah, well, I think the sound of Canate was just, you know, a neon sign that Liverpool knew where the problems were last season. I mean, it was still technically last season, wasn't it, when they signed in? Champions League final was on the Saturday, and I think the Liverpool announced that he was arriving on the, on the Friday. So it was technically still the same season, and the Premier League season wasn't, wasn't even a week old since it, it finished. So... Liverpool obviously been making their move early to, to kind of rectify the problems of last season, but I think they're probably taking a little bit more of a um, uh, measured look at what, what, what else might need doing. I think they, they knew that Wijnaldum was going at that point, didn't they? And, and um, I think they will probably look to see what happens with the likes of Origi and Chikeri in terms of bringing in another forward, because if, if neither of those leave, then, you know, putting yourself in club shoes, he's probably looking at it thinking, well, I don't need another forward because he's already got um, those two and, and Minamino, whatever happens with him as well. So um, personally, I, I do think Liverpool need a new midfielder and I think they do need to bring in another Jota-esque player, player capable of um, coming into the side and the quality not being too kind of um, diminished. Because um, I think now if if Origi starts on the right of that front three, for example, ahead of Salah, if, you know, if Salah's out injured for whatever reason, then it's just a massive dip in quality, isn't it? Um, so I think, you know, that that type of squad player, but with the ability to maybe um, show that he can become a, a regular, you know, just as a perfect example of that, isn't he? Um, what, what a season he had, you know, where... It's just such a shame that he had that knee injury between December and March because he was absolutely flying before he got that and um, still had a, a really good season, scored 13, which is um, a good return in, in your first season at Liverpool. But yeah, I think um, Liverpool will continue to look at that kind of up-and-coming player, if you like, rather than a, than a ready-made superstar. You know, Canate is a good example of that. Isn't he? He's only 22. Plenty of games for, for Leipzig, but um, a player who's not even a fully-fledged France international. You know, he's he was at the under twenty ones, wasn't he? But someone who they think can be a, a star of the future while you know contributing straight away. Theo, what's your take sort of on the the midfield situation? I, I sort of understand at the top end of the pitch, you, you don't bring anyone in until others have departed, not just for raising funds, but you don't want sort of too many bodies around the place type thing. You don't want sort of Jordan Chikiri and Divock Origi having to stand as mannequins sort of on the training ground. Um, but in midfield, there seems to be that. Pressing gap. I mean, Gini van Aldum's gone. There is no player as yet coming in. Surely it's it is an issue that Liverpool want to press on with and solve sooner rather than later. It depends what the solution is because they've still got Naby Keita, they've still got Alex Oxlade Chamberlain, James Milner, Curtis Jones. They have got the numbers. It's just whether you can trust these players to stay injury free 
or to step up consistently. Like we know the club have got high hopes for Curtis Jones, and you'd expect that he has, is able to step up. But Milner is what thirty five now, and he's not going to last forever. We're already seeing signs of that last season, where he'd play a few games and then get a little knock and have to miss a couple. And we know Alex Oxford Chamberlain and Naby Keita's injury records. And it's one where Liverpool can't afford to be in the position they were last summer when the transfer window closed, where they had too many players, where they transfer fees, they're asking for the likes of Wilson and Gruwich were too high. So they had to accept loans. And it was all a bit backwards. Granted, that was a result of the pandemic and how everything panned out. But this year, they've got a lot of time to plan it all out and what they want to do, what players they want to sell, what fees they can get for them. And then decide what's there. What Well, Liverpool have the numbers in midfield. The issue is whether they've got someone like Wijnaldum who can do that number six role, who can do the eight role, who can do the ten role. Because if you had players like Fabinho, if you had to play him at centre-back if he was injured or Henderson's not available, there is no one else there because we're not saying Gruwich is going to have a future with the club. And it's not as though, oh, we could put Naby Keita there or we could put Oxlade-Chamberlain there the way you would with Wijnaldum. It's about getting that variety to the midfield and it's probably where Liverpool's midfield is a little unbalanced at the moment, but they've got plenty of time to turn it around. Like We've just listed, what, half a dozen names, probably more, the players mm-hmm. that they can sell to bring in. But we think if you're saying at least 10, 15 million for each of them, that's a decent enough war chest to get a proper midfielder in to fill this gap. The only concern is when you've got the likes of Curtis Jones there in the front, we were talking Harvey Elliott, how much does a new player block their pathway? It's about getting that balance right to giving them the chances to make themselves Liverpool first-team players in the future. And then you've also got the right-back situation where we know Nico Williams is probably going to ask for a transfer and that Liverpool are expecting a re- decent enough fee for him. If he goes, it's like, granted, you've got Milner who can play right-back. Henderson could if you're desperate. Binho's played there before. Gomez has played there before. But it's not that natural player there. So it's what do Liverpool want to do with this squad? Because if the season started tomorrow... They have got the players to have enough players in the camp to cover every single position. But it is square pegs and round holes for a lot of it. It's like how much of this is really going to give you in the best state to take on Manchester City and topple Manchester City in a Premier League title race. Difficult, though, with the Man City thing as well, though, isn't it? Because Liverpool haven't got the unlimited funds to have sort of three players in every single position and maybe have to cut corners and take calculated risks. But on that sort of theme as well, Matt, they've sort of fresh in their minds, got the memories of last season of trying to take that calculated risk with the centre-half situation and certainly in midfield won't want to leave themselves short. Yeah, no, exactly. I think, you know, the the Manchester City thing, I get to an extent. I mean, Liverpool are not going to have four £55 million fullbacks. That's just not going to happen. But I think you can sort of get yourself into a situation where, for example, last summer they signed Simicast for, what was it, £11 or, or so. I think something like that is realistic. I mean, Certainly, if they lost Nico Williams, I think that would be an absolute priority because you know, I think to, to not have proper backup to, to Trent, I think, would be a similar sort of mistake to, to what they ended up doing last summer with obviously letting Dan Lovren leave and not replacing him. So I think you kind of have to, to learn those lessons. You have to be sensible in terms of, of the sort of numbers that we're talking about. But I think, you know, it, to, to take the right back role as, as an example, if Nico Williams was to leave, Liverpool fans would then want them to, to make a signing. But it wouldn't be the same as, you know, Manchester City two summers ago going out and already having Kyle Walker and buying Zhao Cancelo. I mean, it would be, you know, a typical Liverpool signing that you'd expect them to, to make in that area. And yeah, I'd be surprised if they if they didn't do something along those lines. But yeah, it's uh, it's one of those. I think 
you know, we know that Jurgen Klopp wants to have a tight squad. He doesn't want, you know, so many players in, in each position and he likes to be able to have that versatility. But it is a fine line. You don't want to leave yourself in a situation that Liverpool did last season as much as next season isn't going to be quite so condensed. I think they will have, have seen what happened last year and they'll obviously, they already have at centre-back with Conate. But I think, you know, those lessons, I think, will have been learned by the end of the summer, even if it maybe doesn't quite look like it is at this moment in time. Yeah, just over eight weeks to go then until the transfer window closes. The race is on. Of course, it's not. There's still plenty of time for Liverpool to get their dealings done. That is it, though, for this edition of the Blood Red podcast on the day. Of course, Liverpool do start their pre-season preparations for the new season. If you haven't done so already, do check out the uh, link in the description to our Blood Red Club exclusive content every week direct to your email inbox. All you've got to do is leave us your email address and the content will find its way to you. But from myself, Guy Clark, Matt Addison, Paul Gorst and Theo Squires, thanks for your time and your company. It's bye for now. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.